Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I am your host, Rob Walling. Each week on this show, we talk about ambitious startups, but startups that don't necessarily need to raise buckets of venture capital. These are companies that build real products and sell them to real customers for real money. Sometimes that's bootstrapped, sometimes it's raising a small amount of funding, but it's really founder-controlled, founder-focused, profit-focused companies that provide an enormous amount of leverage due to the amazing software tools that we have to build these SaaS companies today. And if all is going well, as this episode goes live, just a few hours later, I will be doing a five-hour live stream, microconfremote.com, if you want to get a ticket to that and check out all the amazingness that producer Xander has put together. And I'm going to be interviewing some guests live in a studio in Minneapolis, as well as some remote keynotes, remote conversations, all kinds of wacky goodness. So I hope you're joining me on that today. Today I'm flying solo and I've had several interviews and conversations over the past few weeks and I like to mix it up and not just have this be an interview show. Today I want to talk to you about the power of options. And it's the power of options is the ability to have a lot of different paths that you can take and to not back yourself into a corner in a way that you're constrained and and you can't make choices the way you want to make them because you have essentially painted yourself into a corner or made decisions that eliminate some of your options. And I want to start off with a quick story about a company called Tactical Studies Rules or TSR. So TSR was a company formed by Gary Gygax to essentially house and publish Dungeons and Dragons. It's a game that he co-invented, co-wrote in the 70s. And he started this company, TSR, to to publish the game, basically, because no one else would publish it back in 1974. And as we all know Dungeons and Dragons became extremely popular, much more popular than than any of the other kind of war games of its time, and it became really the first role-playing game, the first you know, fantasy RPG. But as, as TSR became more and more popular, and if we roll into the 80s and into the 90s as the second edition, the first edition and the second edition were released... TSR started getting itself into a bit of financial trouble. And and the challenge with having a publishing company like that where you're manufacturing things is you have this enormous upfront cost to develop and then to print a product. And so you print 10,000 or 50,000 books and you're going to release them on a certain day and they have to be in physical warehouses and there's just an enormous amount of capital that has to be outlaid in order to, to make that happen. And then if it works, then you you know, you make some profit and then you can reinvest that back. But if any of those don't work, you lose buckets of money. And even if they do work, you have this massive delay between when you invest the money and when you get the capital back. So it's not like software. And that's one of the luxuries that we have in the in the SaaS space is we don't have to deal with managing inventory and having inventory sitting in a warehouse. And often, usually with SaaS, we don't have to deal with payment terms, net 30, net 60, net 90, where we're providing a service or product and then not getting paid for it for a while. But with, of course, TSR or any type of publisher like that, they have to have these massive cash reserves in order to be able to produce the product. So one thing TSR started doing, and it was really one of the contributing factors to their demise, because TSR sold to a company called Wizards of the Coast in, uh, I believe it was the late 90s. And they essentially, TSR went bankrupt is what happened, and they were sold for parts. And I, I believe they had $30 million in debt, and they sold for like $30 million or 30 5 million. Some, it wasn't public, but it's reported to be that much. So in essence, Wizards of the Coast just paid off their debt. And I don't think the shareholders got much, if any, out of that sale, which is incredible because TSR was the, the intellectual property holder for an enormously valuable cachet of games and 
characters and copyrights and trademarks and just stuff that was really valuable, but the fact that they had gotten so far into debt really spelled their demise. And one of the contributing factors to this is they really reduced their options dramatically. And the way they did this is in order to, to raise capital, instead of, I feel like they could have raised some outside, some venture, some angel or whatever, I guess they were past that point. But instead of doing that, what they would do is they'd say, okay, we're going to figure out everything we're going to launch over the next year. And we're going to go to market to all the distributors and the retailers, and we're going to ask them to pre-purchase, to pre-commit to all the purchasing they're going to do over the next 12 months. And then we're going to take all those purchase commitments, and we are going to sell those to, in essence, it was like Wall Street or, you know, in, I don't think it was investment banks, but maybe it was, but they would, they would package them up and they'd sell them at a discount, right? So instead of, you're obviously, they're not going to pay, Wall Street's not going to pay 100% of the revenue or of the projected net profit, but maybe they'll pay you 90% or 80%. This is often called factoring, um, where you sell accounts receivable at a, at a discount in order to get the money now. And to be honest, like margins in publishing are not that great anyways because of all the physical, you know, the, the physical product that you're shipping and refunds and returns and, and whatever happens there. But in addition, they're also then factoring stuff and they were locking themselves into a, a production schedule a year in advance so they couldn't respond to competitors very well. They were really not flexible or they had no dexterity in essence. And one year it went really far south and they got a bunch of returns and they couldn't respond by reducing the number of products they were going to release. And they laid off a bunch of people and they couldn't produce the products they'd already committed to and pre-sold. And they had just reduced their options. They'd reduced their options to the point where everything had to go right or else they were up freak. And the, the reason I'm telling you this story is you may not care about this at all, but it's such a parable of how reducing your options further and further and further can back you into a corner and cause you to have to make bad decisions. And whether those decisions are to have to sell your company for parts or to, to go bankrupt or to not be able to send your kid to college or whatever that may be, you want to keep your options open. And in fact, one of the, the powers of running a startup, one of the powers of running a small company is that we have enormous amounts of options. Think about competing against the 900-pound gorilla, the slow-moving, you know, whoever it is, Salesforce or QuickBooks, where you know it's a big company and they're planning six, nine, 12, 24 months out, whereas a startup, you can literally plan to do something today and then tomorrow you get a feature request and you implement it by lunch. And, and that's, that is one of the superpowers of us. That is one of the jujitsu moves of using your competitors' strengths against them. And so as a startup, we need to maintain as much optionality as we can. We need to realize the power of, of having options and keeping our options open. So I want to give you a couple examples of this that I've experienced in my life, um, both with myself, friends, colleagues, relatives, and such. And then I'll talk a little bit about keeping your options open toward the end of just, I think, some some kind of guidelines and and how I think about it in my life. Because also there's a danger of, I want to keep all my options open all the time and I'm never going to commit to anything that might reduce optionality. And that's not good either. It can be too extreme and you can be too much a, a jack or jill of all trades because you don't want to narrow your focus and you don't want to get great at any one thing because it removes options. And I don't, I don't think that's a good way to go either. So the first example I want to bring up is this idea 
of the entrepreneur mobile, which is a concept that I learned about from Dan and Ian on the Tropical MBA. The entrepreneur mobile is the car that you drive as you're starting your companies. It's before you've you've made it, so to speak. It's before you get rich, in essence. Uh, but you know, before you make buckets of money, and you basically you buy a cheap car, you buy a used car, and you take the money that you didn't spend on the five hundred dollar a month car payment that all your friends have. You know, you, you know they they did when they got out of college, and you take all that money and you build a damn business. And this is exactly what I did. So at one point, I'll say it was around let's say the twenty ten to twenty thirteen range. I had quite a bit of money in the bank, and you know, as someone who grew up. My first job, I made minimum wage. My dad was a construction worker. My first job out of college with an engineering degree, I made $17 an hour. Having, let's say, I'm guessing it was around $100,000 maybe in the bank that I had just saved from, I had sold products, I had worked consulting and just saved this money. It was a lot of money. It was a huge amount of money, the most I'd, I'd ever had at that point. And instead of going out and leasing or or buying a brand new car, which you know a friend of mine at the time like already had credit card debt, literally had a negative net worth, had his you know rent payment and this credit card payment, and then went and bought like a BMW and had a five hundred dollar a month card payment. I just I couldn't see doing that, and I didn't want that drag on my ability to grow businesses, and so. Sherry and I went to a guy who was referred by a good friend of ours and I bought a salvage title, which means it had been in a wreck and it had been totaled. So it was a salvage title, Buick Rendezvous. And I paid about, it was right around $9,000 and I paid cash for it, never had a car payment. And that car lasted me about a decade, I believe. And I almost never put any money into it. And when I think back about all the money that I saved not buying that BMW and paying the car payment and all the all the cash I could invest into growing my net worth and invest into Hittail. You know, there's a reason I had $30,000 to invest in Hittail. It's because I didn't go out. And frankly, I would have loved to own a nice car. I actually do appreciate luxury things. But it's that sacrifice of when you do that, you reduce your options. Because when you have that $500 or $1,000 a month drag, it's a depreciating asset. You've reduced your options to go spend $1,000 a month on Facebook ads to grow Hittail or to start your next app. Like as I took all the revenue from Hittail to start Drip, I had options because I kept my options open by not saddling myself to debt. And I think that's a big thing is like debt reduces optionality. Debt is consumption of your future earnings, but you're consuming them now before you make them. And frankly, having any type of high monthly expense, I mean, yes, I've owned several homes and I do still own a home today, but even that, I would argue, is that a is that a necessity? You know, having a large house payment. I've seen people be house poor is is a term you hear where they buy a house and then they don't have any money to do anything else, and it it can hamper your options. It can hamper your ability to to grow a company. I'll even take it a step further. You know, one of my relatives owns a good chunk of a of a construction firm, an electrical contractor, and he and I have conversations all the time about keeping options open. And the standard model of having, if you're an electrical contractor in a city, is you have an office and you have staff there and then you have a shop, which is like kind of a warehouse-ish thing where you store some tools and that's where the electricians come in to grab stuff and they have stuff shipped there and then you can put it out to the job site and this and that. And I, I asked him, you know, do you really need an office? 
could you go fully remote? And he's like, yeah, I've been thinking about it. Nobody does that, but why do we need an office? So we started talking through. He's like, well, they need a little place to ship stuff and a place to kind of store some tools or some assets or trucks or whatever. And so we started looking into just these, like a storage facility or buying a warehouse out in a warehouse district where you don't need an actual office because do any of us really need that physical space anymore? Or could you run a fully remote? I almost think of it as it's like a, a bootstrapped-ish startup or, you know, a microconf startup, or like I say in the intro of this podcast, you know, it's, a, it's an ambitious company. But he's just running a, an old older school company, right? It's a, it's a construction firm. And the thought there is like, if you don't have that office, you just have more options. Could you even start doing work in another state pretty quickly because you don't always need to open an office? Or could you do it in a different part of your state? Or could you, you don't have that rep payment, so where does that go now? You know, I mean, it could go to the bottom line, you could pull it out, or you could use it to be more efficient or to bid more jobs. Or there's just so much you can do when you have these options and you maintain them. To be honest, this leads me right in. Like, this is the reason we started Tiny Seed. Like, I was writing angel checks to startup founders who didn't want to take venture funding because it put them on a path and it reduced the options they had. They could no longer pull out dividends. They couldn't have an LLC. You know, there were just certain things that they weren't able to do. And I was writing angel checks to, to these companies that can be wildly successful for us. And for us, wildly successful is maybe five or maybe it's 20 million in ARR, but that can change the founder's life and it can provide an amazing return for an investor. And Tiny Seed was was really the way to make that more sustainable because I was frankly running out of uh, allocation. You know, I was, I was so overweight startups at the time and didn't want to put more money into them. But Tiny Seed allows us to invest in bootstrap SaaS in a way that that really doesn't reduce their options in the way that a lot of other funding sources do. And so let me switch up and talk about keeping your options open in a few ways to do that. Now, I've already covered a couple in the examples that I've said above, but if you think about one is, of course, you're just keeping your personal spending low. And there are entrepreneurs, like these days, my personal spending is not low, I will admit. And I saw a video of Noah Kagan the other day talking about what he spends in a month. And he spends $20,000 a month on this Airbnb in Malibu. And his spending is not as low as it used to be. But you know what? he makes a lot of money. He makes a million bucks a year or something. I, I forget what he says it in the video, but it's it's a lot. And I am at the place now where my spending doesn't need to be low. And, and I'm willing and able to indulge in some luxuries that I really haven't my entire entrepreneurial career. And, and I didn't until, until I sold Drip in 2016. And so that's the thing, you know, if, if you're not there yet, you've got to be willing to do the things that no one else will so you can live like no one else can, right? And keep your spending low, I think, is, is a big one that people um, make mistakes about often. I think the other one that I think about is if I'm going to build an app on the side, I'm going to keep my day job. And, you know, I was either working a full-time job or I was consulting the entire time that I was building my, my startups. Now, if you have the luxury, if you've done really well, if you've saved up you know, a year's worth of salary, good for you, then then you don't need to do that. And if you just want to focus, then you don't need to do that. And we can think of counterexamples of people, you know, if, if you recall, Colin from customer.io was on the podcast a while back and he said he and his co-founder just quit their jobs with no customers. And that, I wouldn't have done that. That would have been too scary for me to do. But you know what? Think about what the worst case was if they failed. They were two developers and this was 2012 or something. They could have gotten a job kind of anywhere. The, the worst case actually wasn't that bad. They still had options. The time when you don't have options are when you're like TSR and you know, who I mentioned at the top where you have backed yourself into such a corner that you really don't have a backup plan. Like what is the backup plan? It's to go bankrupt. Well, that's not much, much of a backup plan. Another thing that I'll throw out to keep options open is until you have enough personal wealth 
to where you can tie some of it up. Invest in liquid investments. Invest in things that you can buy and sell quickly. Obviously, keep the cash cushion between three and six months of living expenses is the rule. These days, I actually keep a little more than that, just given you know where the economy is and, and the fact that I don't think I want to sell stocks or cryptocurrencies to, to pay my expenses if, if there's a, you know, a long recession or a long dip in these assets. But if you have a bit of net worth, obviously, you can invest in public securities and equities and such. But I would not be investing in things that are illiquid, personally, until I could literally write that check and not worry about it. And so illiquid investments are things like investing in startups where you don't know if you're going to get any money back for five years or 10 years or, or maybe never. And I think the, the last thing I'll throw out on keeping options open is if you are going to take funding from someone, like think to yourself, does this reduce optionality? And am I willing to live with the reduced options that I have? And I mean, funding is kind of a bit of a, of a random topic. I only bring it up because I you know, had mentioned Tiny Seed earlier, but day to day, I actually think pretty heavily about which of my decisions are undoable. Because being able to undo a decision is, a, is an option of sorts, right? If I make the decision today to paint this room that I'm in blue, it's a pain to undo it, but it's not actually that bad. I can either repaint it myself, I can hire someone to do it. If I make the option to sell my startup today and to walk away, that is a very, very hard, near impossible decision to undo unless you try to buy it back and you know that that's just unlikely. Similarly, in the situation I'm in today, if I buy a car, I want to be pretty sure that I like it. But frankly, if I don't like it, it is undoable. I might lose a few thousand dollars if I sell and then buy again, but it is undoable given my current financial situation. 20 years ago, it would have been very difficult to undo because a few thousand dollars would have been a major swing. So you have to know what is undoable at what time in your life. And that's where having more money makes things more undoable. It's pretty interesting. More money gives you more options. And that is one of the pieces of freedom. You know, when I say startups can bring freedom, purpose, and help you maintain healthy relationships, part of that freedom is not just, oh, I can work when I want to, or I can pick who I work with, but it does just give you a lot of flexibility if you are able to, you know, in, increase your net worth to the point where, where you do have that life-changing money. And like Will Schroeder said a few episodes ago, maybe that's just $200,000, $250,000 in your bank account. You have a lot of options once you have that kind of a cushion. So lastly, and then I'll wrap up, I also think it's interesting, I, I've often told the story about when I bought this app called .NET Invoice, it was one of my first successful apps that I paid 11 grand for, and I, at its peak I got it up to between three dollars and $5,000 a month in revenue, it was a one-time sale, and it, it really changed my perception on, wow, I can do this. You know, As a solo founder back in 2005, 2006, I can make well more than my house payment just on the internet as a micropreneur, micro ISV. But the interesting thing was, is one of the reasons that I really pushed into .NET Invoice is there was a forcing function on me. My back was to the wall because I'd written this $11,000 check and I hadn't done very good due diligence and the app was in pretty bad shape and I was super stressed out. And it felt to me like I had reduced my options because I dumped all this money into this thing and wasn't super happy with, with what I had gotten. But it forced me to basically make it work because I couldn't let that $11,000 go to waste. And similarly with, with Hittail, I paid $30,000 for that. That app was in better shape and I knew more about it. I had done better due diligence, but I felt like my back was to the wall and I have to make this work because I've just spent this much money. And what's interesting it was, is it was a mental forcing function for me to really double down. And in both cases, I spent like 60 days working 60 hour weeks. These are one of the few seasons in my life where I have worked more than that, that full-time mark in order to get, get these things done. But realistically, 
my back wasn't to the wall. I hadn't actually reduced my options that much. I had spent a little bit of cash. In both cases, it was almost all the cash I had in the, in the bank account. But if Don Invoice or Hittail had completely failed, we weren't going to lose our house. We weren't going to go bankrupt. I had not reduced our options to the point where I had to sell our assets for parts to Wizards of the Coast. It's really an interesting thing to think about. Is there a way to mentally force yourself into feeling like you have reduced options for the the potential gain of doing that? Because I've done it to myself a few times. Now, sometimes it can stress you out. Maybe it's not always the ideal situation. But in those two instances, it did work to motivate me and to push me to go the extra mile and to really build these apps up to something that became a, an amazing ROI for me. And both of which, you know, provided a lot of revenue for me to then grow subsequent apps like .NET Invoice was a big reason I could then buy Hittail years later. And Hittail revenue, net profit was a huge reason that, that I could start Drip. And so all that to say, I was giving a little thought to kind of this fake reduction of options, you know, where mentally it feels like it's a forcing function. It feels like I've reduced options. And the only way to go ahead is to press forward and do hard work and get this done. But when I actually think about it, I still had quite a few options uh, at my disposal. So that's it for this episode on the power of options. Hope you enjoyed it. And I hope to see you at MicroConf Remote today if you end up hearing this on Tuesday morning. And as a heads up, keep your eyes peeled for the first episode of season two of Tiny Seed Tales. It will be live on this feed in just about 48 hours. So Thursday morning, September 3rd, Tiny Seed Tales, season two, episode one will be live. And every Thursday morning after that, for the next several weeks until this season is wrapped. I will talk to you again next Tuesday morning.